Listen, I am so honored to introduce Pastor Jay Stewart. Um, there's a proverb that says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And so when I think of you, that's what I think of. He, man, he, he could easily say, nah, I'm just too busy. And he's not the kind of person that says I'm too busy. He's the kind of person that says yes. I would love to come and share. And so we love the refuge. Um, how many of you just have been to the refuge for any event ever at all? Okay, my whole church. The whole church right there. Um, we're like the refuge Albemarle. <laughs> we love what God's doing at the refuge. And we're so thankful that you would come tonight and just share with us what God's put in your heart. Um, aren't you glad to have him in the house? And so how do we welcome people? Come on, Pastor Jay. fancy right there. That's awesome. I love it. Hey, great to be with you again, gathering. I, I told somebody I feel so at home when I come here. I feel like I could just kick my shoes off, prop my feet up. I mean, it just feels like home. I love this church, and I get the privilege of serving as one of your overseers, and, and I just love what God's doing here. I love the body of Christ. We've got some of our refuge folks here in addition to the RDS students, and I love your pastors. How many of you know that According to Ephesians chapter 4, your pastors are a great gift that God has given to you and pastors Paul and Wendy, and they're tremendous people. You know, when you've been doing this for a long time, you, you get to a certain point that you just have had enough with the whole celebrity stuff that's going on in the church. And, and I love when I just run across authentic and genuine leaders and pastors, and that's what you have and Pastors Paul and Wendy, and we have a wonderful relationship. We spend time together, and, and your pastor is one of those guys. You know, people in life are elevators. They'll either take you up or take you down. And he's one of those kinds of guys. He's one of those kinds of leaders that every time I'm around him, I feel like I've gone up. How many of you know what I'm talking about? So I'm just thrilled to be here for the first night of Encounter, and I believe it's going to be a great week for you guys, but I also recognize this, and it's something that I want you to recognize as well this evening, and, and that is this, that you that are here, that have shown up for this very first night, that you have a, a, a great privilege and responsibility to be thermostats and not thermometers. In other words, that you have the responsibility of determining the climate for the next three nights and not just reflecting the climate. That's what a thermostat does, that you set the climate. I've said oftentimes, to have what you've never had, you have to do what you've never done. And so I want to challenge you that on this very night, this first night of encounter, that you get out of your comfort zone. And that you are willing to maybe do some things that you've not done before in order to pave the way for those who are going to show up Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night. You see, I, I believe this, that the way that you receive the word tonight paves the way for the next three nights. What happens on the first, on, on the first uh, night of a revival. What happens the first time you gathered in this place, the way that you worshiped, 
the way you receive the word, I believe it, it set the climate, set the atmosphere for what God wanted to do in this amazing building that the Lord has entrusted to you. Two years ago, when we were down on the corner and I was preaching encounter and, and your pastor and I walked down here and we walked through this place, it was just a shell. It was like just one big giant empty shell. But, but I love vision, and your pastor walked me through, and he said, this is going to be here, and there's a wall here, and the auditorium here, and children's rooms here, and, and, and I could see it, and I loved it. And now, being back last year for Encounter was very, very special, being in this building and being back again. God's entrusted something that's really wonderful to you, but to whom much is given, much is required according to the Word of God. And I'm just saying to you, I want you to set the atmosphere of this place tonight in the way that you receive the Word of God. Come on, how many of you are willing to do that? Come on, how many of you are willing? Come on, I want you to get a little bit vocal. I want you to get excited about the Word of God. I need some people that will talk to me a little bit tonight. Because I believe the Lord wants to do something great, not just tonight, but I believe God wants to do something great in the remaining nights of this encounter. And I, I, I want to assure you of something. I'm not here to try to impress you at all. I feel very honored to be here, and I believe with all of my heart that God's given me a word for you tonight. And I want you to be ready. I want you to write some things down this evening, and I promise you this will be done by midnight. But we're just going to trust God. I'm not here to impress you. We're just here to just, like your pastor said earlier, man, we're just here to hang out with him and just to encounter him. And isn't that a great privilege? Isn't that an honor to be in the presence of God? We should never, ever, ever take for granted the presence of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, if you've got your Bibles, go to John chapter 21. Take out... A piece of paper and a pen or go on your phone or your iPad, your device. I want you to write some things down tonight that I feel like are very, very important for all of us. And no matter your gender, no matter your age, no matter how long that you've served God, at some point in your life, you are going to deal with the thing that I'm going to talk to you about tonight. It was back in 1999 in New York City, there's a guy by the name of Nicholas White. At the time, he was 34 years old, and he was working right there in Manhattan in a building that's called the McGraw-Hill Building. It's a 50-story building. He was a production manager, and he and his team were working late on a Friday night in October 1999. They were trying to meet a deadline. And it was after 11 o'clock. Now, uh, Nicholas White's office was on the 43rd floor of the McGraw-Hill building. And somewhere around 11 o'clock that night, he decided to take a break. He got on the elevator and needed a smoke break. It was a smoke-free building. And so he gets on the elevator. He goes all the way down. He walks through the lobby. He passes the security guard. He walks outside of the building and he lights up a cigarette he stands out there for about 10 minutes smoking his cigarette and he comes back into the building walks back past the security guard gets on the elevator to head up to the 43rd floor back to his office again to join his team and to try to finish the project that they're working on and as the elevator began to make its way up something happened in that moment between floor 13 
and 14 as the elevator came to a stop. And so Nicholas White did what you and I would do. He pushes the button and nothing happens. And he waits a moment, he pushes several buttons, and nothing happens. So he did what you and I would do. He pushes the button harder. Come on, how many of you have done that? You just push the button a little bit harder, like somehow the button didn't understand what you were trying to say. So you push it a little bit harder, and nothing happened. So Nicholas White then starts pushing the alarm button. You know, that alarm button that's on the elevator, and he just passed the security guards. They know it's just a matter of moments before somebody's going to come and they're going to rescue him off of the elevator. He's not worried. He's not panicked. He knows it's just a matter of moments. Somebody's going to realize that he's stuck on the elevator. He waits five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes go by, 20 minutes go by, still nobody has showed up. He pushes the alarm button a few more times and he knows somebody's coming. Maybe they just took a break. They're going to come. They're going to get him off of the elevator. And as he continues to wait, all of a sudden an hour has transpired and nobody has come. Now, here's the thing. He has no food. He has no water. He's got three remaining cigarettes and a pack of Rolaids in his pocket. So he thinks, well, somebody's going to come. He pushes the button again. Still nobody shows up. One hour turns into two hours, turns into three hours. Listen, Nicholas White was stuck between floor 13 and 14 on that Friday night in October 1999. Not for a few hours. He was stuck for 41 hours in that elevator. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life that I have felt like Nicholas White. There have been times that I have felt like I was just stuck, like I was just in that place where I was neither here nor there. And I want to talk to you about this place. It's what I call the land of in-between. It's that place of transition where you're not here and you're not there. You're just kind of stuck. The reason I want to talk to you about this tonight is because many people derail in their faith in this space right here. Many people question the goodness of God in this place right here. Many people take their eyes off of the Lord. Many people walk away from their destiny. They walk away from their calling in this place right here because oftentimes we have a wrong view of the land of in-between. You see, a lot of people view this as a place of destination, and it's never intended to be that. It's kind of like the front porch of your house. You might greet somebody there, but it's just a passageway into the house. Nobody's intended to stay there. You don't want somebody sleeping on your front porch. You don't have dinner on the front porch. No, you meet somebody there and you invite them in. Listen, this place is not a place of destination for you, but a right view says this. This is a place of transition. Come on, how many of you are with me? Oftentimes we have a wrong view when we view this as a place of defeat. It's not a place of defeat. This is a place of growth. Oftentimes we view this as a place of punishment. Listen to me gathering. This is not a place of punishment. This is a place of promotion where God is taking you from strength to strength and from glory to glory. God wants to push you forward. He wants to move you towards your destiny. And we need to know how do we navigate 
this place? How do we get from here to there? How do we get through this season of transition without allowing our faith to be destroyed? It's interesting now in John chapter 21. And we find the story of the disciples who are neither here nor there. They're right here where I'm talking to you about. They're in this land of in-between. Go there with me, if you will, John chapter 21. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. In fact, we have a practice at the refuge, and I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to kind of impose this on you tonight, but we always stand to honor what I believe is the greatest book on the planet. Would you do that here tonight as I read some of these verses together? John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Come on, if you're excited about the word, say amen. amen. John chapter 21, verse 1, it says this, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, referring to John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. I'm going to ask you to do something before you're seated. We're going to pray. And I, I just want to ask you, if you will, come on, just, just hold your hands out like this. It's just a posture of receiving. Come on, just in these moments. Let me tell you, the Lord wants to feed you. He wants to do something in you right now. God wants to set the atmosphere of this place, not only for tonight, but for these remaining nights. I believe God wants to do miracles in this place. Come on with your hands outstretched to the Lord. Let's pray. Let's get ready. Let's get ready to receive what He has for us in this place. Oh, God, we thank You for Your presence that's here, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We thank You for Your Word that is living and active, that speaks to us right now. And we believe that you give good gifts to your children. And so we hold our hands out with expectation, not with entitlement, but as children who love and trust our Father. And we say, oh God, we desire to draw closer to you. We want what you have for us tonight. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say. And I pray that signs and wonders would follow the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. If you agree with that, come on, say amen. 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 You can be seated. Hey, let me give you, if I might, just a little bit of context for those verses that we just read. The disciples are in a very difficult place. You've got to understand this. 
They're talking about these disciples who have walked away from their livelihood. They've walked away from their career. They've walked away from equipment. They've walked away from relationships. They've walked away from family to follow this controversial radical by the name of Jesus. Where Jesus came along and he saw this guy who was a tax collector. And listen, in that day, tax collectors were below used car salesmen. If you're a used car salesman, please don't be offended. <laughs> but Jesus comes along to this guy who's a tax collector, and he says, hey, you know what? I see some great potential in you. Why don't you come and follow me? He finds these fishermen who are mending their nets along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he says to them, you know what, guys? We can wash the smell of fish off of you. I see some great potential in you. Why don't you come and follow me? And so these men leave what they're doing, and they start following this radical by the name of Jesus. And for the next three years and about four months, they're with him. They're doing life with him. They're serving. They're a part of miracles. They're seeing dead bodies raised and blinded eyes open. They're seeing backs straightened up. They're seeing bread and fish multiplied. Oh my goodness. It's incredible what God is doing through them and through Jesus. And Jesus begins talking to them about this coming kingdom. And they're excited about this because they know I'm going to have a really important role in this coming kingdom. I can just imagine some of them slipping away and they're going and they're getting fitted for a crown. Like, they don't tell anybody, but like, we're going to go, we want to be ready, you know. So they're excited about the coming kingdom and they don't fully grasp and understand everything that Jesus is talking about. They just know this is really, really big. But then all of a sudden, everything that they thought was going to happen takes a left-hand turn, an abrupt turn, and all of a sudden Jesus is crucified and they're left in this space called the land of in-between. They don't know what to do. Everything they thought was going to happen, now it's all been put on hold. Somebody has hit the pause button. They're stuck between floor 13 and 14. They thought there was this coming kingdom. They had this great season with Jesus while he was here. And they knew where they were headed. And now they find themselves in a place where they are questioning everything. And here's the danger for you and I. There's three things that the enemy desires to do to you and to me if we find ourselves in this place of the land of in-between. And as I said before, if you've not been there, you will be there. If you've been there before, you're going to find yourself in that place again. Three things I want you to write down. Three things that the enemy loves to try to do to us when we're in that season of transition, in that place that some people have thought was a place of defeat, and it's really a place of growth. Some people have thought this is a place of punishment. No, it's a place where God's promoting you to the next place. But if we're not careful, here's what the enemy will try to do. Number one, write this down. The enemy will try in that moment to challenge your security. And security is a big deal to us. We know that. That's why the security, the private home security systems have gone crazy. 
People, uh, you know, with ring where, you know, somebody can come to your front door and you can be hundreds of miles away, thousands of miles away, and all of a sudden somebody rings your front doorbell and you get an alert on your phone even though you're thousands of miles away, and you can look right on your phone and you can see who's standing at your front door. You can actually talk to them and say, hey, what's up? What are you doing? You can watch somebody trying to steal your Amazon packages off of your front porch. Security system is a big deal. The number of concealed carry permits off the chart, the number of people that are doing Why? Because security is so very important to us. It's a, it's a big deal to us. And oftentimes, here's what we find, that when we're in this place of transition in the land of in-between, we're not here and we're not there, that the enemy will try to key in on your fear factor. Because how many of you know fear and faith cannot coexist? And so the enemy tries to key in on that fear factor inside of us and make you feel very insecure where maybe you're here and you know where you're headed, you know what God has said about you, somebody prophesied over you. And it was crystal clear. You knew where God was taking you. And all of a sudden, everything that you thought was going to happen now, all of a sudden, nothing seems like it's going to happen. And you begin to question everything you ever thought about your destiny, everything you ever thought about your future. And you begin to feel very insecure about where it is that God's taking you. And that spirit of fear tries to creep in and tries to take over and erode your faith and drive faith out of your heart. And what happens in that moment is that the enemy does this. He tries to make you think that where you came from is better than where you're going. That where you came from is better than where you're going. He did that with the Israelites. They'd spent 400 years in bondage in Egypt, 400 years in slavery, 400 years of abuse, 400 years of hardship, and God sends this man by the name of Moses, and he delivers them out of the bondage of Pharaoh and out of the bondage of Egypt, and just days out of Egypt, I want you to notice their language. I want you to notice what begins to happen to them in Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. Listen, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What are they doing? They're accusing Moses. Moses, the one that God used to deliver them out of bondage and just stays out of Egypt. Now they're saying, Moses... We would have been better off if we would have just died there in Egypt because you've just brought us out here to starve us to death. What's happening? The enemy's keying in on their fear factor, beginning to cause them to question, is there really a promised land? What's this guy talking about? Where is he really taking us? We would have been better off if we would have just died there because the Israelites began to think where we came from. Come on, is better than where we're going. Now watch, it gets worse. Watch this in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. Crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Here was their complaint. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. 
And we had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. All we ever see is this supernatural provision from heaven. What in the world is going on? They have bought into the lie that where we came from is better than where we're going. Oh, we remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt. We had all the melons and onions and leeks and garlic that we ever wanted. Yeah, you know what else you had? You had slavery and bondage and people whipping you across the back. You have an abuse. You had your kids growing up in abject poverty. Do you remember that? You see, we get into this space right here, the land of in-between, and we'll begin to question the goodness of God, and the enemy will key in on our fear factor, and all of a sudden we begin to think, are the promises of God true? Are they real? Is God really taking me to a place of influence and destiny? And we begin to think, you know what, I had a pretty good life back there. Had some great friendships, great relationships. Yeah, but do you remember that you were addicted, you were in bondage, you were lonely, you were depressed, that you were crying yourself to sleep every single night, that you had a gaping hole of depravity inside of your heart? Do you remember all that stuff? The enemy tries to challenge our security. Makes us think, oh, God, it's not true. And for the first time, in, in that moment, their perspective begins to be distorted in the land of in-between. And in that moment, Peter gives in to the pressure and to the fear of the unknown. And for the first time, for the first time, since Jesus called him away from his fishing nets and said, I don't want you to fish for fish anymore. I want you to fish for men. I've got a greater calling for you. I've got a greater destiny for you. And for the first time since that day, Peter gives in to the pressure to go back to the thing that he was familiar with. I call it the fallacy of the familiar. That all of a sudden we're in this place of transition and we begin to long for the thing that used to bring us comfort. We begin to long for the thing that was familiar to us. And for Peter, it was a deliberate walking away from the thing he was called to do to the thing that he was comfortable doing. Can I just remind you that God is a lot more concerned about your character than he is about your comfort? Come on, somebody. That in those moments where the enemy tries to key in on our fear factor, there's that temptation to go back to the thing that we're familiar with, back to the thing that we're comfortable with. Why? Because the enemy wants to keep you from fulfilling your destiny. You see, for, for you and I and for Peter, it wasn't just about Peter. It's not just about you, my friend. It's not just about you crossing the finish line and somebody high-fiving you and saying, hey, way to go, you made it. It's not just about you crossing the finish line and somebody putting a medal around your neck and saying, hey, great job, you made it. No, it's not just about you, but it's about all of the people who are waiting on you there that you're going to influence, that you're going to minister to, that you're going to touch, that you're going to lead to Christ for Peter. It wasn't just about him. But see, in this space, in this place, he couldn't see the day of Pentecost. 
He couldn't see that he would preach. And in one sermon, in one day, 3,000 people would give their hearts to Christ. He couldn't see that he would be one of the foundational stones of this thing called the New Testament church that we're a part of right now. It wasn't just about Peter. It was about destiny. It was about the fulfillment of what God had called him to do. And the thing I need for you to understand tonight is that it's not just about you surviving this difficult place and making it through the place of transition. No, there's a destiny God wants you to fulfill. There are people he wants you to touch. And it's about you fulfilling the thing that he's called you to do. It was an interesting season for me, not just for Nicholas White in 1999, but it was also an interesting season for me because I was in a place of transition in 1999. I had walked away from a, a ministry position that I'd had for 11 years. I'd walked away from security. I'd walked away from comfort. I'd walked away from what I felt like was destiny. I'd walked away from all of that, thinking that God was taking me one place, and I find myself in the land of in-between, not for a few days or a few weeks, but for one solid year. And in that year, I had a brand new baby, and I had another one on the way. In fact, both of them are here tonight as students in RDS. One's a third year, one's a second year student. But in that season, 1999, the enemy really began to key in on my fear factor. The enemy really began to cause me to question all of the dreams that God had put in my heart. And I began to believe the lie that where I came from is better than where I was going. I began to believe the lie that God was done with me, that he'd put me on a shelf, that my days of ministry were over. I remember so vividly, day after day, without any income, without any job, pushing a, a, a stroller through a neighborhood in the middle of the day when I should have been at work, shaking my fist figuratively in the face of God, saying, what is it that you're doing? Why are you mad at me? Why are you angry with me? Why have you put me in this place? And in that moment, I could not see that in 2004, that God would call us to plant in a basement this thing called the refuge. 1999, I, I had no plans of planting a church. I could not see that God would cause us to plant something that within 15 years that we would have campuses on three different continents. I couldn't see in that moment that God would entrust to us a weekly television program that would broadcast in 25 Middle Eastern nations to millions of Muslims and Jews. I couldn't see that in 1999. I couldn't see that there would be students that we would be mentoring and pouring into and discipling. I could not see that in 1999. Why? Because the enemy wanted to challenge my security and prevent me from ever fulfilling the calling and the destiny of God. Here's the second thing that happens. The enemy doesn't just want to challenge your security. He wants to corrupt your influence. You see, I've discovered this. It's one thing if you want to mess up your life. If you decide you're going to do your thing, go your way, go back to your party and lifestyle, rebel against the Lord. It's one thing if, if you're going to do that, but it's an entirely different thing if you, in that process, start screwing up everybody else's life. 
I, I grew up in Georgia, and there, there was a famous statement that people in Georgia would make. And, and, I, and I, I, please don't be offended by this, because I, I am one, but I grew up as a, just a card-carrying, pure redneck in Georgia. And a, and a favorite saying of rednecks was this. Hey, y'all, watch this. You see, I grew up with, with guys that they, they would want to do something crazy, but every time they wanted to do something crazy, they wanted to drag other people into their mess. Because if it went bad, if it went south, if they got in trouble, they didn't want to be out there all by themselves. They wanted you to get in trouble with them. So they'd say, hey, you know, I've been thinking. That's a dangerous statement coming from a redneck. You know, I've been thinking about something. And all of a sudden, you know, the sales pitch is coming, man. They want to drag you into it. They want to talk you into whatever it is, whatever crazy idea that they've had. They want you to be a part of it. And the same thing happens now. Same thing happens with Peter. Verse 3, John chapter 21. Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now listen, Peter had every intention of dragging other people into that decision. Otherwise, he wouldn't have announced that. He wouldn't have said that. Peter would have just slipped off quietly, gone and picked his fishing nets back up and started fishing again. No. Peter makes a statement out loud in the midst of the other disciples in the hopes they're going to go along with him. And guess what? It worked. Peter says in verse 3, Hey, I'm going fishing. Their response was, We're going with you. And so they go back to the thing that they were comfortable doing, the thing that they were familiar with. Now, leadership has been defined as influence. All of you are leaders. You're influencing people every single moment, every single day of your life. But here's the question. Is your influence positive or negative? Is your influence pushing them towards the things of God or away from the things of God? Because you're an elevator. You're taking people up or you're taking people down. How is God using your influence? Is it good or is it bad? Let me give you seven indicators of when your influence has become negative and not positive. Number one, when fear replaces faith as our greatest motivator. When fear replaces faith as our greatest motivator. Number two, when haste outruns the Holy Spirit. Number three, when comfort trumps character. When comfort trumps character. Now, we don't like to feel uncomfortable. We don't like to be put in a place that we're uncomfortable. In fact, the older we get and the longer we do certain things, the more we resist change. But I've discovered this, that if we are going to fulfill the destiny of God, we have to be willing to change. Because if you're unwilling to change, guess what? You're, you're going to become a monument, and God never called you to be a monument. He called you to be a movement. And movements move. And you as the church were never called to be some monument, some relic of the past, 
some reminder of what God used to do, of how God used to move. God calls you to be a movement. And if you're going to be a movement, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. You have to be willing to change. Come on, are you still with me? Have I made you mad yet? Here we go. Number four, when prosperity is defined only in terms of money. Number five, when logic wins out over obedience. Number six, when we speak before we think. I had a teacher in elementary school I'll never forget in Columbus, Georgia, and she used to say this over and over and over, and the saying was this, put your brain in gear before you put your mouth in motion. Oftentimes, James speaks in chapter 3 about how difficult it is, how challenging it is to tame our tongues. And oftentimes, we speak before we think. And our influence goes from being positive to being negative. Number seven, when we think more of ourselves than we do of others. The Apostle Paul said, let us esteem others more highly than ourselves. Let us look out for one another. The Greek word there is skopos. It means to like put under a microscope. It's where we get our English word microscope. Let us examine very carefully how we can minister to others, how we can bless others, how we can esteem others more highly than ourselves. The enemy wants to corrupt your influence. You get in this space, the land of in-between. You're not here, you're not there. And the enemy wants you to question the goodness of God, question everything you know about faith, question everything you know about your destiny, your calling, your promise, and then to corrupt your influence and to cause you to not just internally process, but then to use your tongue and to use your questions and to use your anger and your disappointment to corrupt other people and to drag them away from their calling and from their destiny. Here's the third thing. And then we're going to pray. We're going to close. Not only does he want to challenge your security, corrupt your influence, he wants to confuse your reality. Confuse your reality. This is awesome. Now watch this. Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. Watch. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Now watch. Since his resurrection, Jesus had already appeared twice to the disciples. All right, so, hey, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Verse 8 says they're about 100 yards offshore. So, let's just say it's early, early in the morning, and the, the, the light is just breaking uh, through the sunrise. It's just, uh, just beginning to bring enough light. But maybe they can't make out the details of who it is that's 100 yards away that's standing on shore. They can just make out a shape and a figure. Let's give them the benefit of that. Hey, maybe fog had rolled in that morning. And they can see the figure of somebody standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, but they can't really make out who it is. All right, I'm with you. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say, man, the reason they didn't realize it was Jesus, they just could not See him. But the Bible says that he then called out to them. Now he had reminded them in John chapter 10 that his sheep know his voice. 
They had spent three years and four months with him, and Jesus calls out to them, Hey! Have you any fish? And they still don't realize. They still don't recognize his voice. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They couldn't see him clearly. But they should have known the moment they heard the sound of his voice. But they didn't realize it was Jesus. Why? Because the enemy had confused their reality. Confused their reality. Their vision was blurred. Their hearing was messed up. They were blinded to who Jesus really was. He wants to do the same thing to us when we're in this season. We're between here and there that our reality becomes confused. And all of a sudden in those moments, we begin to question, did God really say, is God really faithful? Can God really heal? Will God really provide? Will God really do a miracle? Is everything that I've ever been taught about Him, is it real? Because it doesn't feel real in this moment. And all of a sudden your vision becomes blurred to the reality of who He is. We find the confusion among the Israelites. We go back to Numbers chapter 16. Verse 13, isn't it enough that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. And now you also want to lord it over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Listen, did, did you catch that? Their reality is so confused that they're referring to Egypt as a land flowing with milk and honey. That's not the Egypt we read about. It's not the Egypt they knew. They're accusing Moses, shaking their finger in his face, saying, Moses, you brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey, and you're not even taking us to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. They're confused. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says to the church at Galatia, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all watch evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ do you see do you understand that when you're in this space that's what the enemy wants to do to you wants to throw you in confusion and pervert the truth of the gospel so that you question everything there is about the Lord. And when I've read this story in John chapter 21, I've always wondered this. Jesus calls out to them, Friends, hey! Got any fish? It's kind of like Jesus is rubbing it in a little bit. Don't you, don't you realize he already knew the answer to that question? Jesus is God, right? He already knew what was going on. He had seen them futilely throwing their nets out hour after hour after where all night long catching not one single fish reminds me of most of my fishing experiences I'm a terrible fisherman drives me crazy somebody can be three feet away from me pulling in fish after fish and I can't catch a stinking fish I can relate to this hey got any fish 
read that and I'm like, man, is Jesus just playing head games with them? Is he just kind of twisting the dagger a little bit? Is he just rubbing salt in the wound? And then I realized, no, it's not that at all. That's not the Jesus that we serve. Jesus says, hey, got any fish? No, haven't caught any fish all night. Throw your nets on the other side. These are professional, experienced fishermen. They had every reason to resist those instructions and to say, Hey man, dude, we don't know who you are, but we're, we're good at this, like we know what we're doing. They had every reason to say that, but for some reason, they said, what do we got to lose? They throw the nets on the other side of the boat, and the Bible says the nets are so full of fish, they can't even pull them into the boat. Here's a question I've wondered. Why would Jesus allow them to succeed at the thing they're not supposed to be doing? And then I realized this. They didn't succeed. Remember, they fished all night with no results. They only succeeded when Jesus came on the scene. And the reason I believe that Jesus allowed them in that moment to succeed was not so that they would go back to a lifestyle of fishing But he allowed them to succeed so that they would be reminded of what they were called to do. And in that moment, I believe when they saw those nets full of fish, all of a sudden, it's like this this mass collision of reality and truth where all of a sudden they're like, wait, wait, wait. This is not what we're called to do. We were called to fish for men. And it's in that moment that John goes, hey, hey, I know who that is. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And we don't understand everything that's going on here, but we know Him. We know that He'll take us to the place that we're supposed to be. And He'll do the same thing for you reminds me of something that happened a long time ago right here in the state of North Carolina. The year was 1874. There's a group of people in the outer banks of North Carolina, a place called Swan Quarter, North Carolina. Some of you may have heard of it. It's right at the tip of the Pamlico Sound. And at the time, 1874, it wasn't a town, it wasn't a city, it was just a village. There was a group of people They had formed a a Methodist church, Swan Quarter United Methodist Church. Their church had grown. They were looking for property. They were going to build a new building. They were so excited. And they began looking for property. Now, most of the property in Swan Quarter, North Carolina, is just barely above sea level. They found a higher piece of property that was right on Main Street, It was ideal, it was perfect, and it was owned by a man named Sam Sadler. They went to Sam Sadler and they said, Hey, listen, we're from Swan Quarter, United Methodist Church, and you've got a vacant lot on Main Street and we want to buy it. And Sam Sadler said, Absolutely not. And they were so disappointed. So they kept looking for land. They found a piece of property that was less than ideal. It was on Oyster Creek Road, Swan Quarter, North Carolina. They bought the property. They began building their church building. 
And they finished the building. And on September the 16th, 1876, they dedicated that church building. They were so excited. You guys remember when you moved into this place, how exciting it was? They were so excited, man. They celebrated. They thanked God. They had worked. They had labored. September 16th, 1876, three days later, a hurricane blows in from the Atlantic. The floodwaters come surging up the Pamlico Sound, and all of Swan Quarter, North Carolina, is covered in floodwaters. And a very interesting thing happened, and history records this, that that church building that they had just dedicated, they had, they had labored and worked and built and sacrificed and dedicated that building, so excited. And three days later, history records that the floodwaters lifted that church building up off of its foundation, and the entire church building began floating down Oyster Creek Road. Can you imagine how those people must have felt? <laughs> I mean, you talk about being angry with God. God, we worked, we sacrificed, we dedicated this building to you, and now there goes our church building. Man, oh man, you talk about a bad day. Man, History says people are running and they're grabbing ropes and they're tying ropes to the building and they're trying to tether the building to trees and, and it's just to no avail. The building keeps floating down Oyster Creek Road and then history records that something so unusual happened as that church building bumped into the general store and it took a 90 degree turn and it began floating down Main Street. True story. True story. And eyewitnesses say that build that church building is floating down Main Street and it reached a certain point and it veered to the left and floated over a canal and it stopped. It, it just came to rest. Guess where? On the property owned by Sam Sadler that he refused to sell to them. And all of a sudden, that church building sits right on Sam Sadler's property. And guess what? It still sits there today. Now, eventually, Sam Sadler deeded the property to the church. But let me tell you something. God has a way of using the most severe storms of your life to move you from here to there and to put you in the place that you were always supposed to be. Come on, are you thankful that the hand of God, even in the midst of some storm, will move you to the place that you're supposed to be? Hey, listen, you're here. Maybe you're between here and there. And the enemy is trying to challenge your security and make you think where you came from is better than where you're going. Maybe he's trying to corrupt your influence. And for you to say, you know what, I'm done with this stuff. I don't understand how God's moving. I don't understand what God's doing in my business. I don't understand what God's doing in my family. I'm going to go back fishing again. 
maybe the enemy in that season, in that place, is trying to confuse your reality and cause you to question the goodness of who God is. David said this in Psalm 27. I am confident of this. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Listen to me, God sent me here to you tonight on this first night of encounter to say to the to you, maybe you're in this space. Maybe you're between here and there. Maybe for you, it's the place you are in your relationship with the Lord. Maybe you're in between jobs. Maybe you're in a transitional state in your marriage. Maybe it's with your kids or your grandkids. I'm here to tell you tonight, God is faithful to move you from here to there. He will put you where you are supposed to be. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes across this place. Come on, we're going to pray tonight. We're going to believe. We're going to believe. I I sense in my heart God is stirring faith in this place. Some of you that walked in, you were discouraged. You were weary. You were done. You were questioning everything about who God is. God brought me here to remind you that even though you might be in a dark place, in a difficult place, in the fiercest storm that you've ever faced in your life, that the hand of God is going to put you right where you are supposed to be. So, Father, I pray, God, over these precious ones who have come tonight for the first night of encounter. God, I believe you brought me here with a word for them. I believe there might be some people here tonight that are between here and there, and maybe the enemy has begun to mess with them. Maybe the enemy's tried to get into their head space. Maybe the enemy's challenged their security, confused their reality, corrupted their influence. Whatever the case, Father, I'm asking that right now, in this moment, that you would step into the midst of that season of transition for them and you would make yourself known to them in a way that knows I will end up where I'm supposed to be. I will not allow the enemy to win because it's not just about me. It's about the people that I'm going to influence. It's about the people I'm going to touch, the people I'm going to minister to. Oh God, I pray that in this moment you would cause faith to arise in our hearts. Help us to know, God. Help us to see and to believe, Lord, that you are a faithful God. We've sung about you tonight. We've worshiped you tonight. But, God, I pray that now, God, there would be a collision of truth and reality that causes people to know you've not abandoned me. You're not done with me. That you never leave us or forsake us. You stick closer to our side than a brother. You're an ever-present help in our time of need. If you're here, you're in that place of transition. Maybe you have thought it was a place of destination. Maybe you thought it was a place of defeat. Maybe you thought it was a place of punishment. And God has caused you to realize, no, it's not destination. It's a place of transition. It's not a place of defeat. It's a place of growth. It's not a place of punishment. It's a place of promotion. You're in the land of in-between. If that's you tonight, stand to your feet right now. I believe God wants to meet you. God wants to minister to you. If that's you, come on, stand up. Stand up. 
Say, I'm in the land of in between. I'm between here and there. I believe God wants to do something. God wants to speak to you right now. Come on, listen. There's something. It's an act of faith of you extending your knees, of you moving from seated to standing. There's something about that that I believe God honors. It really is an act of faith of saying, I don't understand everything that's going on. Listen, 1999, I did not understand much of anything that was going on in my life. Maybe that's you tonight. If there's anybody else, if that's you, come on, I want you to stand here. night of encounter. I need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If that's you, stand to your feet. I need a fresh touch from God in my life. Maybe you need a healing in your body. Maybe you need a miracle in your finances. You need a miracle in your marriage. Come on, if that's you, stand to your feet right now. We're going to pray. We're going to believe with you tonight. Hallelujah. 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 Father, I have faithfully delivered this word. I'm asking you now that signs and wonders would follow the word that I've preached. Have your way in this place. In Jesus' name. If you're standing to your feet, I want you to do what this song says. Come to the altar right now. I want you to move from where you are to this place right here in the front. Come on, every person who's standing, we're going to pray. We're going to believe. You're going to encounter the Lord right now in this place. Come on, if you're standing, come on. Right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, God.